Please listen carefully. Hey everybody, welcome to Across the Connor Radio. This is Coach Chris. Uh, so we have Chris Irvin on the podcast today. Chris is also known as the Ketologist. Chris is a nutrition researcher, writer, educator. Uh, he has a master's degree in exercise and nutrition science. He's also the currently the education manager for Perfect Keto. So he and I got connected on Instagram uh, because I follow the Perfect Keto podcast and I reached out to Dr. Anthony Gustin and then he referred me over to Chris because the two of them wrote a book uh, called Keto Answers. And basically this book is a combination of hundreds of questions that they've received over the years and they wanted one guide uh, for people to go to that were interested in keto uh, or a ketogenic diet. So we basically dive into keto and uh, what it means to him to be keto, uh, how one would go about getting into eating uh, in a ketogenic way, exactly what that means, uh, what the benefits of keto are, and also uh, if there are any downsides to it. Uh, We talk about all the uh, ins and outs of uh, protein and fat and carbs and how that affects the body. And then some of the things that you know people want to keep in mind when starting. Uh, so for instance, supplementing with electrolytes, if that's something that he would recommend or not. And then also talking about variations of men versus women and who may not want to do keto. We would get into a whole bunch of uh, common, common myths. So things like doing keto for things like CrossFit, which are typically very glycolytic or other you know, high intensity exercise uh, activities. And so, yeah, we talk about all things related to, to keto and, and ketogenic diet. So some of it can get pretty geeked out in terms of science. So if you're looking for that, we definitely have it. Even if you're not, though, there's going to be some takeaways for everyday people who are just curious or have heard about the keto diet and, and wondering exactly what it is. So hope you enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to email us at info at crossacana.com uh, or find us on social media and message us there. Thanks. All right, so uh, guys, we're here with Chris Irvin. Um, Chris, you are, you know, we'll, we'll just call you kind of an expert on keto. So that is what we're going to talk about today. But why don't you give us uh, a little bit of background on your story, how you grew up, what you were doing growing up, how you got into nutrition, how you got into keto. Give us the 10,000 foot view of your story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to come on. It's always uh, a great time to get to come on and chat keto with people. Um, so, so yeah, my backstory is I grew up in a small town in the Midwest uh, from Illinois and uh, grew up, um, didn't, didn't really grow up with much of a passion for nutrition, but I always had a big passion for sports, um, played you know basketball, baseball, cross country growing up, uh, went to college and played basketball there for four years, played baseball for two years and kind of got my first introduction into nutrition when I was in college because I uh, I was studying biology and exercise science, and I, you know, took a nutrition class where it was, um, you know, looking back on the information that I was learning in that nutrition class, it was definitely outdated. Um, but it was information. It was something that it was my first kind of touch on what you put in your body helps your body perform and helps you fuel, and it's, you know, it's, it plays a big role in your success in sports and, and human performance. 
So probably my freshman year of college is when I really started taking a look at what I was eating, paying more attention, um, just being a little bit more mindful of, of making sure that I was nourishing my body and at the time what I thought was an appropriate way to do it. So, you know, for my four years of college, I got really into like the paleo movement and just started really focusing more on eating, you know, whole foods, real foods. I hadn't heard of keto at the time yet and, you know, wasn't really definitely wasn't doing any sort of carbohydrate restriction at the time, um, but was definitely focusing on, on just eating a better diet. And, you know, I saw a lot of improvements in just my uh, my body composition, my performance, my endurance, uh, you know, playing basketball, all of those things improved. So it was really good feedback for me to know that like, okay, this nutrition thing, it's, it's something to take seriously going forward. Uh, you know, my goal at the time was to, my kind of career path was that I wanted to become a strength and conditioning coach at the NBA level. So I kind of knew that, you know, it was important for me to have an understanding of nutrition so I can be the best strength and conditioning coach that I can be. So my first year after uh, college, I was working in a sports performance institute, um, just training youth, high school and collegiate athletes. Um, still wasn't really like full, fully focused on nutrition. I was definitely more on like the exercise science side of things. And then, uh, you know, kind of had like a little funny run in with a coworker who was uh, doing bodybuilding and he was doing like physique competitions. And um, I was, you know, one night I was sitting with my roommate at the time and he was, uh, we, we were kind of chatting and he was saying like, you know, there's, there's no way you could ever do like a physique competition because, you know, you, you'd have to like really clean up your diet and you'd have to, you know, really focus on like, you know, eating a certain amount of protein, carbs, fats, all of that stuff. And, you know, me being kind of the competitive person I am, I just, I signed up for a contest like 12 weeks later that night. Uh, it was, it was something that I just dove headfirst into. And, um, and so I went through a prep for this, this physique competition and it was, this was kind of my second back like reintroduction into nutrition and its importance because when you when you're trying to get down to like really low body fat percentage your nutrition plays such a bigger role um, than what your exercise does in my opinion um, you, you really have to like lock it in you just can't get down to that level if you don't if you just let your diet go so i started learning a lot more about nutrition during this period but i was learning all of the wrong things i was doing you know carb cycling i was eating a low fat diet um, by the end of it, when I got to the competition, I was really lean. I was like down below 5% body fat, um, but I felt like heck, like I, I couldn't play sports anymore. Like when I'd go play basketball, I felt really weak. Um, I, I felt like I had low testosterone levels. I was, um, I wasn't performing well in the gym. I was having mood swings. I just, everything was kind of a disaster at this point, despite the fact that, you know, visually and aesthetically, I looked like I was in great shape, but I really had just the, some of the worst health going on. Um, so from that moment, I, I came, you know, I decided that I wanted to really start considering uh, nutrition and, and I saw that like I was doing things wrong and the conventional wisdom was just off. So I wanted to really dive into research. So I jumped into a master's program down at the University of Tampa that was a, a master's in uh, exercise science and nutrition. And I was first introduced to keto when I was down there. And um, I, I went to a conference right before I started attending school and the conference was held by um, Dr. D'Augustino and Dr. Volick, who are two of, you know, I always, always say that they're the Mount Rushmore's of ketogenic scientists. They're, they're just like the two top guys. And, um, and so they started talking about keto and, and they presented some of their research, but I really didn't see the diet as much more than a weight loss diet at the time. So I, I saw it and I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to recommend this to a couple friends and family members of mine who need to lose weight and who have, are always asking me about losing weight. Um, but I didn't really pursue it any further. 
And then when I started grad school, my first class I had, it was a sports nutrition class. We started talking about the ketogenic diet for endurance performance. And we started reading a lot more of the research out there where these ultra endurance athletes are seeing incredible improvements in their race times and in their general health while following a ketogenic diet. So I started realizing that, oh, you know, in this, this sports performance realm, which was still kind of my primary interest, um, the, this keto diet has some, you know, has some validity here. So I jumped in and started the diet right away and um, made a ton of mistakes when I first started. And we'll, we can touch on some of those mistakes in this, um, in this interview. We can go into those, but um, just kind of figured it out for, you know, the next like year. And I started really liking the way that I was feeling. At the time, I was working in a lab doing research. So I started doing ketogenic diet research with uh, collegiate athletes and, and college students. And we were just doing, you know, like perform, like how does the diet affect their performance? And at the time I was doing, um, I was working in the lab from, you know, I, I would go personal train in the morning from five to eight. And then I would work in the lab from nine to five. And then I would go back to personal training from like five to 10 at night. So I was working these like incredible hours. Um, and before I, I started this schedule before I was keto and I, I kind of felt like, heck, I just had no energy. And then when I started keto, I started realizing like, man, despite this crazy hectic schedule, I, I feel incredible. My energy's through the roof. Um, so, you know, there was kind of this, uh, another affirmation that like, man, there's something more to this diet than even just weight loss and, you know, performance. Like, you know, my brain is functioning really well. I, I feel great. So later that semester, I, I, I came across a book called Tripping Over the Truth by Travis Christofferson, and I highly recommend it to anybody. who He's like one of my favorite authors, um, and he this book just talks about a lot of the, um, the use of metabolic therapies for chronic disease, and especially like the talks about like the ketogenic diet for cancer. And this mm -hmm. was the first you know, insight into, oh, now there's a therapeutic component to this ketogenic diet that I didn't even know existed. So from there, I was fortunate enough to get hooked up with the researchers at the University of uh, South Florida, USF. They were doing, um, that's Dr. D'Augustino's lab there, and they were doing research, um, just a lot of different keto for metabolic therapies research. And I got to kind of go over there and, and help, um, just lend a helping hand and do some volunteer work over there and learn from all of them and see kind of the potential that this ketogenic diet had for all these different conditions. And... You know, from there, I, I finished up grad school and I was kind of at a crossroads where I was like, I, I had kind of entered grad school with the intention of going and getting my PhD. And that was the plan was to do that. But I started to become really discouraged by the end of my grad school about how much information I was coming across in the research on, you know, the ketogenic diet helps with Alzheimer's and diabetes. And, you know, there's stories about cancer and all of these different conditions but nobody's heard about it. And, you know, this is back in 2015. So there were people doing keto back then, but it definitely hadn't boomed yet. Right. Um, so I became really discouraged by this. And, and, you know, I see all these incredible researchers putting in all this amount of time into writing these papers and they get lost in these journals that nobody can read. And even if they do get access to them, they have a hard time interpreting them. So I decided to go more of the education route. Um, which is kind of what's led me today where I am today is I went education and started getting more into the industry because I wanted to be a part of, you know, this movement. And I felt like the industry was going to be a great way to help reach more people and get the message out there and help people kind of adopt this lifestyle to improve their health. And that's kind of what led me to, you know, starting my my brand as the ketologist and then working here at Perfect Keto. So um, it, it was definitely a kind of a shift in what I had planned to do from the start. But but now I think seeing 
all of the, the stories that people are having about with success on the ketogenic diet, the goal is to just get the word out there to as many people as possible. So that's really cool because you were on this um, at a time where maybe people were here, had already heard about Atkins and low carb, but keto now is very, um, is very much on a fad kind of trend, but yep. you were actually on this and discovering the benefits of it from a, first a, a kind of a weight loss uh, standpoint, but then obviously you found um, with uh, Christopherson's book, the therapeutic effects of it, which we'll get into. Um, and now you and Dr. Anthony Gustin wrote a book called The Keto Answers. Now this book, which is, I mean, what is this, like 500 pages or so? Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like almost 500 pages. Um, is is laid out in a way that's very digestible, uh, pun intended, um, because there's an index of questions, and basically you can read it front to back, or you can just look up whatever question and topic you want to look up. Mm -hmm. Was this book a response to the the fact that keto is now a very popular thing to talk about or or to look into? Uh, or was that something that you guys were already because you were already into it and and researching it? Like, how did you get to write the book? Yeah, great question. So I started working for Perfect Keto about a year ago. It's actually just been a year um, that I started working here. And right before I started working um, with the company, I, I had known Dr. Gustin for a little while, and and we were uh, we were sitting down, we were chatting about you know keto, and we were chatting about you know some of the trends that we see and. Um, you know, a lot of the common questions that people are asking, and, and we started talking about how with this movement turning into a fad, everybody's trying to take advantage of this, and, and everybody's writing blog posts and putting out information, and it's really hard for people to get their questions answered. I mean, if you go to Google and you Google a question about keto, on the first page, you're going to get four or five different answers to your question, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's hard to know is this answer backed by research? Is this source that's giving me the answer somebody who is trying to take advantage of me in some way? Or is it just, you know, a legitimately credible re resource? So mm -hmm. we, we talked about that and we also talked about how, you know, every day we're, we're responding to dozens, you know, 20, 30, 40 DMs a day uh, of people asking kind of the same questions over and over again. So we kind of, we just decided that what we need to do is we need to put a resource together that could be the one-stop shop for somebody to go to to get all of their questions answered about keto. So how we did that is, is we, I, we sat down with people who are at different stages of their keto journey. So we sat down with people who were just getting ready to start keto, people who have been following it for a couple months, and then kind of your long-term ketogenic dieters, people who have been doing it for like a year plus. And we just kind of asked them, you know, what, what questions do you have? And then we would sit down, we would answer those questions for them. And then we would see, okay, now that you have this question answered, what other questions stem from the knowledge that you just acquired? Right. And that's how we developed the book is that, you know, as you go through it, you'll notice that it's, you know, each question kind of plays off the previous usually where, you know, if mm -hmm. a question comes up where it's like, are carbohydrates bad? Um, then you, we answer that question. And then the next question somebody might have is, is, uh, you know, what about fruit? Can I have fruit on a ketogenic diet? And then from there it might be like, well, dude, does that mean that I should never eat carbs again? And that's kind of the way that we structured this book was to, you know, we wanted somebody to, okay, you got your base questions answered, but we also want to cover all of these other topics that you're going to be thinking along the way. Um, and just letting people know that, you know, this source is completely backed by research. You know, we use several hundred uh, citations in the book. So, you know, which was done intentionally to let people know that like, we've put in a lot of time, you know, the book, while the book only took you know, six to eight months to write because we really hammered it out and sprinted it out. 
Um, it was really coming from, you know, for me about five years of research uh, and mm-hmm. application, and then for Dr. Gustin, you know, like 10 years. So uh, we just want people to kind of see that, you know, this is a credible source that you don't have to, to worry about, uh, you know, us coming in with some, you know, ill-formed intention of, of trying, you know, we, we really just wanted to distill this information and, and make something useful for them. Yep. Um, so I am picking away the book, but I thought it'd be useful to go through some of those basic questions for people yeah. who might not have the book on hand and for those who uh, don't even know what it is. So how would how would you describe keto to some to a layperson, someone that, you know, they've heard it in magazines, they they've heard people talk about it, but they don't actually know what it is. What what is keto? Yeah. So there's a short answer and a long answer to this. And that's kind of how we structure the book, too. And, you know, in short, the ketogenic diet is a low carb, high fat diet. And, and that's you, that's what the typical response that you'll get from people is. Now, we have a little bit different of, of an approach to this where we we don't um, we don't tell people to restrict their protein like it's so commonly recommended on a ketogenic mm-hmm. diet. Uh, we also don't tell people that they need to be eating incredibly high amounts of fat on a ketogenic diet. Um, but we do we do stress that if your goal is to get into a state of ketosis, which we can talk about what that means, then the low carbohydrate part is is essential. You do have to. Um, restrict your carbohydrates to a level that's going to allow your body to produce ketones and get into ketosis. So, you know, in in general, a ketogenic diet is going to be a diet that allows you to get in a state of ketosis, and that's going to be achieved through first carbohydrate restriction and then filling in the rest of your diet with, you know, healthy fats and protein. Yeah. So would you say that someone could actually be eating in a, a, a ketogenic uh, style or, or diet, but they might not actually be in ketosis? And then if so, um, what are your best practices in terms of measuring, okay, am I in ketosis or not? And then third layer, does that even matter for your average person? Should they be, you know, there with a a blood meter and and pricking themselves and whatnot? And I kind of answered the question, but yeah. Yeah, no, great question. So um, to the first part of that, um, so the first part of the question was, again, can you say? Yeah, so, so basically someone could be eating a low carb, Right. High fat diet, but not actually be in ketosis. Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and in general, it does that even matter? Right. Is it, you know, the goal is to get their ketone levels up to a certain amount. And then and what's how do they measure that? Yeah. Um, what are the different ways to measure that? So there's the whole actual food that they're eating or not eating. But then there's the actual blood work or mm-hmm. pee on the stick or, um, you know, method of knowing whether you're in ketosis or not. Yeah. So to, to answer the first part, if you're restricting your carbohydrates the way that you should be, um, you're, you're pretty much going to be in ketosis regardless. So the way that ketosis occurs is that when we stop eating carbs, uh, our blood sugar lowers, that causes our insulin levels to lower. When insulin levels are low, that allows our body to burn more fat. And when we're burning fat, um, when we're burning a lot of our stored body fat, we're producing ketones and uh, ketones get produced in the liver from the breakdown of fat. They get released into the bloodstream. You're in ketosis. And like you said, you can measure this via a blood test. So they have blood meters out there. Just like you would test your blood glucose, you can test your blood ketones. You just have to use a different strip. Um, you can use the same meter that you would use for a blood glucose test. Um, but the point about that is, is that it, being in ketosis is not an end-all, be-all of health. And you know, a really interesting article that just came out there was an article came out a couple weeks ago about the ketogenic diet for glioblastoma, so a type of brain cancer. 
And there was, um, these people were recommending a ketogenic diet where they were putting the patients on these shakes um, that, that had a bunch of like vegetable oils in them and a bunch of like artificial ingredients and things like that. And there was a response written by Rainer Clement, who is a doctor who does a bunch of research on keto for brain cancer. And he said, he was like, you know, ketosis is one thing, but there's many different ways we can achieve ketosis. And, you know, we can achieve ketosis through fasting. We can achieve ketosis through calorie restriction, and we can achieve it through carbohydrate restriction. But none of those mean that you're healthy. You know, having ketones circulating in your blood is great for your, your health. There, that it does, You do see health improvements, but you can get there eating a, you know, pro-inflammatory diet where you're, you're roasting, you know, uh, antibiotic-ridden meat and vegetable oils and, you know, having a ton of omega-6s in your diet. But if your carbohydrates are low enough, you're in ketosis. So it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the when you're testing your ketones and you're trying to get into ketosis, it's a good indicator to test your blood and see that you're there. But that doesn't mean that you're spot on with your health. I think a better way that we like to look at it is eat real foods. And if you eat real foods that are naturally occurring, you're going to be low carb and you're going to be in a state of ketosis because that's just the way that you're that's just the way that's going to go. You know, you're not going to be able to eat a lot of processed carbohydrates if you're eating real food. It just isn't going to happen. So that's kind of the way that we recommend this we're not really me and dr gustin both aren't really people who are like keto nomads where we we think that everybody should be following a ketogenic diet we think that the principles that are baked into a ketogenic diet generally encompass a lot of our beliefs about nutrition as a whole so it's very easy to refer to what we recommend as keto because that will get most people the majority of the way there um, but when you ask the question about like does everybody need to does a general population or everybody you know, is it important for them to be in ketosis or is it important for them to be keto? It really depends where they're coming from. So I, I put an article out about this um, this morning, actually. But mm -hmm. we have one, one, actually, it's more than one out of every third person in the United States of America is pre-diabetic. And there's over 30 million people that are diagnosed with diabetes. And that's just diagnosed. There's also a bunch of others who aren't diagnosed. And for those conditions, just those conditions there, what we're seeing, what we're seeing as a cause of this is insulin resistance and ins insulin resistance occurs from chronic over car carbohydrate consumption. So you're eating a lot of carbs for a long period of time. You develop insulin resistance. That means that your body no longer effectively uses carbohydrates anymore. So if you're somebody who is in this category of pre-diabetic or diabetic, and that means your body's not using carbs anymore, keto does make the most sense for you because on a ketogenic diet, you're switching your fuel source to burning fat for fuel and you're producing ketones which cells that are insulin resistant that can no longer use um, you know, glucose from carbohydrates, they can still use ketones. So you're providing a fuel source that our cells can use despite um, being metabolically damaged like you'd be in a state of diabetes or, or prediabetes. And then to ex extend a little bit further than that, if you look at most of the chronic conditions that we're faced with today, so cardiovascular disease, uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, um, cancer, all of those are characterized by damaged metabolism, inflammation, and insulin resistance. So when you have those three things, keto targets all three of those things. So, you know, this, this kind of shows you that keto makes sense for a lot of the people that are out there, but it's not something that you have to follow all of the time. It's not something that you have to be 100% adherent to, to to get the most out of it. But it's something that if your metabolism is broken, you can use it as a tool to repair your metabolism, kind of get you into a better um, overall quality of your health. Yeah. So I had always heard that Alzheimer's was like type three diabetes. Yep. Um, 
basically, you know, someone can appear lean, um, have Alzheimer's, and a lot of that is as a result of the carbohydrate and, uh, you know, basically what's going on in the brain versus um, in the body. Mm -hmm. So what's the mechanism with that? Um, when we go low carb, um, and I, you know, and I've traditionally been low carb, just kind of naturally feel better on it. Um, went, did keto, you know, pretty strict, uh, in the spring and cognitively feel way sharper when yeah. I'm low carb. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk about that? Because I feel like, you know, especially like at our gym, we have a lot of high performers, like in business and they, 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 own, they own their own business, they're higher ups, they're C-suites uh, at whatever business they work at. I feel like the cognitive edge alone could be a reason why people look into this. Yeah. Because if you can be sharp uh, and, and on your game, right, um, that in of itself could be worth so much. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I'll dive into that. And I'm going to unpack the first part when you talk about like the mechanism of Alzheimer's and stuff, because I think for people to really wrap their heads around keto in general, it's important to understand this concept of how the body works. So when we consume carbohydrates, carbohydrates get broken down into glucose and glucose, you know, that's what's our blood sugar. So when you hear people say high blood sugar, when you eat carbs, they get broken down, your blood sugar goes up. This stimulates your pancreas to release insulin. Insulin is a hormone that travels to your cells and basically, you know, to kind of simplify, it talks to your cells and says, hey, open up, let glucose in so we can use it for energy. This is a good process. It's something that has to occur. Problem is, is when we chronically are overstimulating this process, which happens from frequently overeating carbohydrates, our cells become resistant to that communication with insulin, which means that they don't respond to insulin anymore, which means that we have to one, produce more insulin, but two, our blood glucose stays elevated and three, our cells don't get the energy that they need to, um, to survive and thrive and carry out their normal functions. So this is, this is diabetes. Um, this is prediabetes. This is where this is part of the, the conversation of what drives inflammation. And this is also one of the things that happens in, in, in Alzheimer's. So in Alzheimer's, this, this process is occurring in the brain. So our brain has this massive energy demand. Um, you know, I, I read a thing the other day. I, I haven't looked it up to check it out to see if it's like totally true, but it was that our brain at rest burns more calories than your thigh muscle would during a marathon. So, um, which it, regardless of if that's completely accurate or not, it's a testament to the massive energy demand that our brain has. And if you think about how, if we're always eating, so if we're eating carbohydrates, they become our body's primary fuel source. When our insulin levels are up, we are not producing ketones to an adequate amount. So that means that our brain is primarily running on glucose from carbohydrates. Over time, our brain becomes resistant to this, just like that mechanism that I just described where now our brain's not getting the energy that it needs anymore. So, so that starts leading to a bunch of, you know, impairments in brain uh, function. And that's kind of what starts the progression towards Alzheimer's or one of the, the mechanisms that starts a progression towards Alzheimer's. But Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases as a side, it's also one of the reasons why we have just impaired brain function in general. So, you know, if we're using glucose as our primary fuel source over time, we stop using it as well. Our brains aren't getting the energy they need. They're not performing as well. So if you're a high performer, um, that's, those are the people who you feel moody, you feel fatigued in the afternoon. You feel like you're running on caffeine all of the time. Uh, you feel like your, your memory's not as good as it could be. Those are all signs that your brain just isn't functioning as optimally as it can. Now, when we go the opposite route and we start talking about restricting our carbohydrates and getting into a state of ketosis, 
Um, I kind of mentioned earlier the mechanism of how our body produces ketones. It's, it's produced from the burning of stored fat. Um, we, we produce these molecules called ketones, which are really important because our brain cannot use fat for energy. So fat cannot cross the blood-brain barrier and be used for energy. Our brain can only use glucose and ketones. So when our liver are, is converting these, or they're you know, producing these ketones, the rest of our body, like our muscles, our working muscles and everything else, will preserve ketones and save it for our brain because, and they can burn fat. So like our muscles will burn fat during exercise, it'll preserve ketones, ketones will go to our brain. Now, what's interesting about ketones is that they are the preferred fuel source of the brain. And that means a couple different things. One of the reasons why it's the preferred fuel source is because when both glucose and ketones are present, the brain will preferentially choose ketones. So that, that kind of shows you that like the brain intuitively knows that it wants to use ketones. So then the next logical question is, well, why does the brain want to use ketones? And there's a couple reasons why. One is that when you break down a ketone molecule, you produce more energy than what you do when you break down a glucose molecule. So that means that, you know, the brain being that it has such a massive energy demand, burning ketones means more energy available to the brain. So one, that, that's a great thing there. The second thing is that ketones create less oxidative stress when they are metabolized. So when we metabolize glucose, we create something that's called reactive oxygen species, which is basically, uh, it's just a fancy term for its inflammation. So we're creating uh, compounds that can promote inflammation. And, you know, an inflamed brain is, a not, is not a high functioning brain. So when we are metabolizing ketone, and when you think about the fact that, again, brain has massive energy demand, if we're burning a lot of glucose, we're creating a lot of reactive oxygen species. But when we're metabolizing ketones, we're not creating that, so we're preventing our brain from developing a bunch of inflammation. And then, and then the third thing there is that when we're metabolizing ketones, we're actually able to use the glucose that is still present in our body. We're able to shuttle that towards different pathways that increase our natural antioxidant production. So not only are we we're keeping inflammation, we're, we're preventing our body from producing uh, more inflammation, we're also creating compounds that can help combat inflammation. So it's kind of a, a two-way approach to keeping our in inflammation low, which is going to be great for, for brain health. So when you look at all of those things, you can see why it makes a lot of sense if you want to maximize brain function that you, are, you choose a superior energy source. So, you know, this... This is, on a simpler term, it would be like if you know that your car runs best on a certain type of gas, um, and it, even though it can run on other type of gases, if you want it functioning optimally, you should put the certain type of fuel in it. And that's what ketones are. They're just the preferred fuel source for the brain. Yeah, not to mention our body has a lot more fat in it than glucose or yes. glycogen, right? And yes. our body can take that and through gluconeogenesis or take protein, right, and turn it into what it needs. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. So would you say, would you, so uh, I'll just throw a statement out there and then you can give me your thoughts. Um, the human body does not need carbohydrate uh, or there are no essential carbohydrates. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And I always say, when I agree with that, I always say with a caveat that that doesn't mean that I think that carbohydrates are bad or mm -hmm. that um, we, that nobody should be eating carbohydrates. And that carbohydrates don't have a function because they do have a function and they can provide benefit and they can be strategically used. But does the body need them? The answer is no. Um, you know, carb, we, there are certain cells in the body that have to use glucose. So red blood cells are one that they don't use fatty acids. They don't use ketones. They only use glucose. And I believe there are certain portions of the brain 
um, that, that also have to rely on glucose. But the, the beauty of it is the process that you just mentioned, which is gluconeogenesis, where we can actually produce um, all of the glucose that we need naturally inside of us. So we can, um, you know, break down, um, you know, get the glycerol backbone from breaking down fat. We can get uh, amino acids from um, protein and we can make the glucose that we need. And that's the reason why even if you eat no carbohydrates, if you test your blood sugar, your blood sugar never goes to zero. And that's because of this process. So yes, we, we are, there are certain cells in our body that need glucose, but no, we don't need to eat that, that the carbohydrates to get that glucose because our body has this process in place that, that means that, you know, we don't have to, uh, have to acquire it from an exogenous source or from our diet. So when people hear about keto, uh, you know, and hear that it's low carb, then the assumption is that it's higher fat and higher protein. And that might mean different things, you know, this lever of, you know, how high you go. But there, I think there's still that conventional wisdom out there that fat is bad, fat will clog the arteries, protein will, you know, ruin your kidneys. Uh, so what do you say to, to, to those statements? Yeah. So the first thing before I dive into kind of bunk, debunking some of those myths is that um, the traditional, like if you look up traditional recommendations for a ketogenic diet, you're going to see 20 to 25% of your calories coming from protein, 70 to 75% of your calories coming from fat and like 5% of them coming from carbs. Now, what people don't take into consideration when they give these prescriptions is that this is what the ketogenic diet, this is how the ketogenic diet was prescribed in the 1920s when we were using it for pediatric drug resistant epilepsy. That's what keto was invented for. So this was for children who were using it for a specific cause. Now, you and I are following keto for different reasons. Everybody out there is following keto for different reasons. So that does not mean that that traditional, very high fat, low protein approach is the best. In my opinion, I think for most people out there, with the exception of certain therapeutic uses, you would benefit more from being a little bit higher protein and a little bit lower fat than that. It is kind of, but I think that it's all personalized. I think that you have to adjust it based on what your specific goals actually are. And the other reason why we, a lot of people think that high fat is the way to go is because people assume that the fat that you eat gets converted into ketones. And that's kind of a common misconception because the ketones that you produce in your body, with the exception of MCTs, um, they're, they're coming from burned body fat. They're not coming from dietary fat. So you don't just eat a mm. steak and produce ketones from the fat in that state. MCTs are the only dietary fat that you can consume that will actually be converted into ketones in your body. So when we talk about keto, people think, well, high fat's better because I need to produce ketones. And, and, and that's not necessarily the case. So I think that most people out there are going higher fat than they need to on a ketogenic diet and lower protein than they should be. Um, mm -hmm. But not because I think the fat's bad, and I'll get into that next, but because I think that they could benefit from having a little bit more protein in their diet. And I think that too many people are overeating fat where, you know, you get people who are like adding a bunch of additional fat to their diets. I think that you can get all of the fat that you need from eating, you know, meat and, uh, you know, get, like getting quality fat, high fat foods, I think is the better way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that you have is you have these misconceptions about dietary fat and protein, like you said. And I, I think the biggest thing to look at is, is why, how do we get to where we are with these recommendations? And um, if anybody wants to, you know, see debunk a lot of the myths and see um, how we got to where we are with our dietary recommendations, I highly recommend checking out Nina Teicholz and looking at her book, um, which is The Big Fat Surprise, I believe is the name of it. Um, but this book just kind of basically talks about how in the United States and in Western civilization, how we got to where we are with our assumptions about fat. And, and basically, uh, to simplify it, um, we used what's known as epidemiological evidence 
to say that fat is bad for us. And what epidemiological is, is it's a type of study where we're basically following populations and we record what those populations are doing and then we report on their incidence of disease and then we try to correlate those findings with causes of those diseases. So an example of this would be if when you guys see the reports out there that say saturated fat causes prostate cancer and you see that headline and everybody goes, oh crap, prostate cancer, saturated fat, I have to not eat red meat. But you go look at the study and you see that uh, the observational, it's an observational study, which means that they take men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer and they ask them what their diets are like. And they ask them questions like, well, do you eat a lot of hamburgers? Do you, you know, things like that. And then if say 60% of the men report with prostate cancer report that they eat hamburgers, then we say saturated fat or red meat is the cause of prostate cancer. That's never how these studies were meant to be interpreted. An epidemiological study was meant to be interpreted as, okay, we have a correlation here. Now we're going to go study this in randomized controlled trials. We're going to look at the mechanisms. We're going to try to find a reason for it. But what happened in the 70s is that we had, um, we had a president who had a heart attack. And we had a nation that was, was very you know, concerned about the, the health, our health, about our dietary recommendations. So we had the American Heart Association and we had, we had them come in and we had this, this panic that we had to have an answer. We had to come up with a diet. So we used this research that was inadequate to say that fat was bad for us and that we needed to follow a low-fat diet to reduce our risk of, of heart attack. And then from then there, we, we decided that, that was the best thing to avoid um, cancer and diabetes and all these different conditions. And the, the problem is, is that this is, this is never checked out before. Um, there, there's no research to show that actually reducing your fat intake is, is better for you. Um, one of the big things that we see in any of the research that says that fat is bad for us, despite the fact, you know, there's kind of two ways to look at research that points at fat being bad. There's the types of studies that I just mentioned. And then there's the other studies that say high fat dieting leads to X, Y, or Z, but they fail to adjust for the fact that the high fat diet was not low carb. So when we're eating mm-hmm. That diet in conjunction with the high carb diet, which is what we would know as the standard standard American diet, that's having you know a burger with uh, French fries, you know, and with the bun on it, that's high carb, high fat. Now the fat that you're eating can cause more damage in your body because of the we're consuming fat independent of carbohydrates. We we don't see any detriments in our health. We see drastic improvements in our health, but that's not something that. Um, is well understood when we're breaking down research. So, you know, that's kind of a long-winded way to say that our understanding of fat as being bad is based on a lot of bad science. It's based on a lot of misconceptions, um, a lot of biases, and also, you know, some financial incentive too. I mean, when you when, if you go read that book from Nina Teichholz, you'll see how a lot of our decisions were influenced by a growing, um, you know, the, the vegetable oil industry that was was really trying to fund research and trying to get people to think that soybean oil and corn oil um, and coal oil was better for our health and that animal fat and saturated fat was bad for us. And uh, so there was a lot of financial incentive that's got us to where we are today, too. But um, I can say confidently that there's no reason to fear dietary fat, especially when you're eating it without the, the addition of um, processed carbohydrates. Yeah. Follow the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also the fact that a lot of these studies are studies of studies, meta studies, right? So, and they all study the same studies. So it's yep. just this echo chamber of like, you know, where they categorize meat as uh, pizza because pizza could have sausage on it. Right. And that's in the meat category. So it's yep. like, sure, I can see why you think red meat is bad because yeah. pizza is considered red meat in this study. 
Right. And, and it's, it's silly when you think about when you break that down and you think about how many like even just there within that example. Well, there's so many other things in the pizza that could be causing the problem. Right. But we don't. <laughs> right. I mean, if I came out to study the other day, I've used this example before, but if I come out to study tomorrow that says um, I interviewed 30 people with cancer and or, or I interviewed 3000 people with cancer and 2000 of them said that they have cats. So I'm going to say that cats cause cancer. Like that would be ridiculous. You would look at me and you would say, you're crazy. Obviously, you can't extrapolate that finding with that being the cause of the <laughs> condition. It's, and that's kind of the point is like, exactly. So we can't right. look at these studies and, and say that these are the thing. We're not taking into consideration anything else. And outside of just the nutrition that, you know, in those studies, they're failing to take into consideration the bread and the processed carbs. Mm-hmm. But they're also failing to take into consideration other lifestyle factors like drinking, smoking, um, you yep. know, lack of, of a social life. Um, yep. all the chronic stress, all these other things that we know play a bigger role in, in our health than what they're narrowing it down to in these examples. So, um, right. research out there, science is hard and, uh, yep. people will use science to manipulate what you think. Um, so it, it's really important to kind of do your research yourself or find people that, you know, are doing a credible job of breaking down research to really get your information from. Yeah, I think Zoe Harkum does a really good job of that, where she explains it in very easy to understand terms. But she's the one who's and you and you too. But like that's why I follow you guys because I I don't consider myself someone that can really interpret a lot of the studies. But I'm happy to interpret what you guys interpret for our members and for people who won't even touch anything close to this. So I'm willing to be that kind of third layer, right. <laughs> if you will. Well, it's important because you know the. It's one thing to be able to read the research. Like most people, when they say they read research, they go and they read like abstracts, right? Like they'll, mm-hmm. they'll right. Okay, well, this is the study. This is what they did. And this is what they said they found. But mm-hmm. the problem is what they say they found in the conclusions. If you go back and read the paper, it's usually not quite that. Usually they right. found some, it can, de- they can definitely, you can use data in any way you want to, to benefit the finding right. that you're looking for. So that's right. kind of your first tier of problem. But then the second tier of problem, and this is something that I'm not very well trained in this myself, but data can be manipulated in ways that you, unless you were a statistician, you wouldn't be able to break it down. And mm. an example of this is I was at a conference in um, uh, low carb Houston last year where there was a bunch of cardiologists that were presenting about, um, you know, low carb diets and um, heart health. And they were talking about, you know, kind of the the disaster that is our current healthcare system for really everything, but especially heart health. And one of the presenters talked about statins and he was talking about how, I believe that the statin that they were talking about was Lipitor. Um, Mm -hmm. They, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like you'll read claims that like 30% or Lipitor leads to like a 30% improvement um, in your, or a 30% reduction in your risk of, of heart disease or something like that. But they had a statistician go in and actually break down the raw data and they found and they, they showed how they manipulated the data. And the findings really were that it was like 1% of 1% of like 1% of the people see like a 1% reduction in their risk of heart disease from taking a statin. So right. like, right. so there's even that other added layer of complexity that like people are using research to manipulate people. And it's right. unless you know, you know how to break it down, you're, you're going to fall victim to that. So I think finding people like yourself, um, and people like Zoe Harkum, who you're talking about, who are willing to take the time to break that stuff down and explain it to people in an easier to understand method is going to be a much better way for you to acquire your information rather than just going to the WHO, uh, right. you know, the World Health Organization or the American Heart Association or the USDA. Um, those governing bodies have done a horrible job of, of 
giving information to us in a way that we can read it and see if it actually makes sense. Um, so it's important to do these things that you're doing. Yeah, very cool. Uh, man, that could be a whole podcast in of itself, just yeah. that, that whole thing. Um, so let's say someone's um, thinking about starting keto. What are going to be your general recommendations for someone who's like, you know what, I need to change my lifestyle. I'm eating a, a standard American diet, you know, stopping off at McDonald's after work and, you know, having, you know, plenty of high carbs. Um, what are some general recommendations for them? To start. Yeah. So for most people, I'd say that um, just starting out by cutting out processed carbohydrates and eating real food is the best thing you can do. Um, it doesn't have to be much more complex than that. Uh, and, and if you're somebody who's really, you know, worried about making the full plunge into keto and, and you think that like going low carb first would be better, I think that that's fine too. Like, you know, there's definitely power in knowing yourself. Um, so, you know, taking, if, if you're cutting out, pro like I mentioned earlier in the episode, if you're cutting out processed carbohydrates, um, and eating real food, you're going to be eating a pretty low carb diet. So from there, you can kind of see what you're doing, how you're feeling. Um, I think for most people, if you go just low carb, you're not going to feel as good as you would have if you went full blown ketosis. So if you're somebody who, once you get to the low carb range, you're like, well, I, I'm not, you know, maybe I'm feeling a little bit fatigued. I'm not feeling the energy that I am hearing everybody report on ketosis. Then it's probably beneficial for you just to jump into keto. And the way that I recommend people do this is, is go get an approved food list. Uh, and you can find that there's one in the Keto Answers book. We have them on the Perfect Keto website. Uh, get an approved food list of what you can and can't have on a keto diet. Stick to those foods and eat to satiety. Because for most people, the vast majority of people out there, you are going to, your body changes its signaling me mechanisms and you stop being as hungry as, as you are. So you're not going to really have to worry about overeating over time. Now, there are some cases where people will overeat on a ketogenic diet and you might have to make some adjustments. But, you know, one caveat to point out there is that calories seem to matter less on a ketogenic diet than they do on other diets. It doesn't mean that they don't matter at all, but they do appear to matter less. So I think the most important part is getting your food choices down right. So if you, if you find these, you know, the, a keto food list, that's a good one. So, you know, there's some out there that, don't, that recommend things that I wouldn't recommend. Um, but stick to that food list, eat till you're full. And then supplement with electrolytes and drink water. And if you do those things, I think you're going to be great. And within a couple of weeks, you're going to feel fantastic. You're going to be on your way in ketosis. And um, I think you're going to like the way that you feel. Yeah. So I had first heard about the electrolyte stuff from the Lean Gains guys and Rob Wolf and, yeah. and all that. So can you talk about that mechanism of, you know, if you go low carb, the body, you know, for every gram of carb, it stores like three grams of water. So mm -hmm. when we go low carb, we, we're getting a lot rid of a lot of water. So mm -hmm. is that why we need electrolytes? And if so, what are electrolytes? How do we get them? Like, how, do, how does that, how, how can we supplement and how can we mitigate those uh, side effects? Yeah, so the need for electrolytes. So I'll start off by saying that electrolytes are the most important supplement that you can take on a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet in general. Um, and most times when you hear people talk about the keto flu, um, which is like the set of symptoms like brain fog, fatigue, muscle cramps, impaired sleep, weakness, all of those things that people think those are like symptoms of carbohydrate withdrawal, like 95% of those symptoms are electrolyte deficiencies and dehydration. So the good news mm -hmm. is that you don't have to deal with keto flu symptoms. When I started keto, I just dealt with those and I was like, oh, this is just a part right. of it. it sucks. Right. I didn't yeah. Know withdrawal. It. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but so you don't have to deal with that. You can use electrolytes. And so the mechanisms, there's kind of two mechanisms for why you need electrolytes. The first one that you touched on is, is our body stores carbohydrates in the form of glycogen. And when we store glycogen, we also store water. 
So when we're not eating carbohydrates, we'll burn through some of our stored glycogen, which means we're going to be releasing some of our water. But a bigger contributor to our water loss and electrolyte loss is when our insulin levels go down. So remember from the beginning of this, I said you stop eating carbs, your blood glucose lowers, and then your insulin levels go down. This makes your kidneys secrete more water and your body releases more water. So you'll, you'll notice when you go low carb that you'll be like, you'll be urinating more. Um, you're just, you're releasing a lot more water. And when you're releasing this water, you're, you're losing electrolytes and you're causing imbalances in your electrolytes. So it's really important for you to replenish them, both water and these electrolytes. And electrolytes are essentially just a classification of minerals that are um, important for many different things. They, they impact our hydration status and how we hold water, but they also impact on a cellular level how um, we func- how we operate. So like magnesium, for instance, is an electrolyte that plays a big role in metabolism. It's one of the most abundant minerals found inside of our cells. So we, we don't want to become deficient in these things because our body doesn't function properly when we're deficient in them. Um, so the, the main electrolytes that you need to focus on on a ketogenic diet is sodium, potassium, magnesium, and then there's some cases to be made for like calcium and phosphorus, but I think that the first three are, are really the, the key three to focus on. And when it comes to replenishing them, you can re- there's kind of two ways to go about it. You can go the whole foods route, um, which is, you know, like salting your foods, um, eating things like avocados, which are really rich in potassium. Mixed nuts have a fair amount of magnesium in them. Um, you can, you know, some leafy greens have some of those electrolytes in them. Those can be really good ways to replenish it. But I think for most people following a ketogenic diet, especially if it's like people from your, your gym where they're, um, or, or people who are doing a lot of exercising and stuff like those are going to be people who have higher sweat rates and have a greater demand for electrolytes. I think supplementation is probably key for them. Um, and there's a couple different ways that you can supplement with them. You can use capsules, which is we at perfect keto, we offer capsules, which are just Um, you know, little pills that contain electrolytes and you can kind of adjust your dose according to what you need and based on how you feel. Uh, But then there's also electrolyte powders, which are just like um, powders that you can put in drinks. Uh, The one that I recommend to people is Element, um, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, Wolf's brand, which you you mentioned him a little bit ago. Uh, I really like his because it contains a lot of sodium, which Mm -hmm. another misconception is that sodium is bad for us, but we... Uh, we need sodium. Uh, it's, it's you know one of the most underconsumed nutrients. Well, I shouldn't say that's underconsumed. You you do get a lot of it on the standard American diet, but um, right, it's packaged with high carbs. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where the problem is. So on a low, not a problem, and we need to have a lot of it. So um, I, I think that for most people, if you're going full blown keto, electrolyte supplementation is going to be key. Yeah, I've been definitely playing around with a lot of that, um, especially salting foods and whatnot, and it makes a noticeable difference. Yeah, Absolutely. when that that sodium levels up. Yeah, uh, but that's a tough message to get across when people hear that they got to stay under, you know, whatever the daily recommendation is, two thousand or so milligrams per day, and because you know it'll cause heart trouble and all that, hypertension. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, what about are, are there people that should not do keto? Um. And or are there dangers to it? Yeah. So, um, there's really not many cases uh that you should avoid keto there's some rare cases where you may need to like there's certain disorders of fat metabolism um that may be indicators where you shouldn't follow a ketogenic diet so i I would i would definitely point those out but those are pretty rare so there's probably not going to be many people listening to this that are dealing with those Mm -hmm. Uh, and the other case that i would say may be from a danger standpoint i don't have any concerns We, we have research showing that it's safe in children it's safe in healthy people, it's safe in elderly people, it's safe in diseased populations. 
Um, I don't have any concerns about people and safety in the ketogenic diet, but so, you know, one of the things with keto is that it can be for some people, if you follow it the wrong way, it can be a restrictive diet. So for people who are suffering from eating disorders or people who are, who have just poor relationships with food, um, just diving into a restrictive ketogenic diet where you can't have certain foods might not be the best approach. Um, mm -hmm. but it just depends on where your mental health is at with that. So, you know, if you're somebody who you've done dieting before and it's led to you, you know, doing a lot of like binge eating and, you know, falling off the wagon and having, you know, bad thoughts about food, poor relationship with food, then you're probably better off just going like low carb and like trying not to restrict yourself as much. Um, and then maybe ease your way into following a keto diet. Um, but if, if you're besides that, I think that anybody can be just fine doing a ketogenic diet. And I think that most people could benefit. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I don't think that everybody needs to be keto all the time, but I think just about everybody out there could benefit through going through at least some short bouts of getting into ketosis and restoring some of their metabolic health. Got it. I see it more with intermittent fasting than keto per se, but even lower carb, I noticed that women have a harder time uh, with lower carb. And yeah. again, I see it more particularly specifically for intermittent fasting compared to men. Is that is there a mechanism there with that? Or is it because maybe they it could be the population I'm talking to, they just women are used to having higher carb or they like sweets more. I just I noticed and and maybe it's just uh, me thinking there is a bias when there is there's really not, but it seems that men can handle uh, a lower carb diet um, yeah. better than women. Is, is there something there to that? Yeah. So a couple things to unpack there. Um, it's unfortunately the one thing I'll start by saying is that we don't have we have way more research in men than we do have in women, mm -hmm. and the reason why that is is because women have hormones that fluctuate throughout the month, so they don't mm -hmm. always make the best test subjects because those hormones are so powerful that they can really change results. So even in animal research, most times they're using male animals because of, of this reason. So oh, really? yeah, yeah. So th that is one thing to point out is that we do have um, less research on women than we do on men, but a lot of the reasons why we have this feeling that women don't do well on, on keto, there's two big reasons why. One is because um, there's some research to show that your thyroid hormones go down when you follow a ketogenic diet. And this leads people to think, and this, this especially happens in women, and we, this leads people to think that, well, that must mean that keto is bad. Um, and this is why maybe some women aren't experiencing like the weight loss that they're looking for. Um, so keto is bad for women. But what people don't realize is that when you look at the mechanisms and you look at the things that thyroid hormones do, ketones actually complete many of the same actions that our thyroid hormones do. So that means that we don't need to produce as much, the kind of the theory here is that we mm -hmm. don't produce as much thyroid hormone when we're on a ketogenic diet and we have ketones circulating. So right. that's not really a great justification for, you know, staying away from keto because it's, it seems like that's not really a problem. But then what do you say to the people that are like, well, I feel like heck when I'm on keto, I'm not losing weight. Um, I was losing my hair, all these symptoms that you hear women say. And to that, the point is that it's the way that you're following the diet, I think is a big problem. So I, I think that there's probably some cases out there where some women maybe just do better with having a little bit more carbs in their diet. But I think the majority of women who are struggling on a ketogenic diet are drastically restricting their, their calories to a level that is just not sufficient to provide their body with enough nutrients. Mm. Uh, men do this too, but, um, you know, one men, like men just may have bodies that are a little bit more resilient or we don't have the as noticeable side effects from this calorie restriction as women do. 
But women do have a lot of these side effects where they'll feel like extremely fatigued, they'll lose their hair, um, all these things you hear these women reporting. And I think that's because they're, you know, women are told, or in general as a population, we're told this, but it seems like women are told from a time they're young, they need to like not eat very much because they need to like not put on weight and they need to be like fearful yeah. of gaining weight. Yeah, and, low fat. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, low fat, low carb. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, you got to make, but what we, what we fail to do, and this is a general problem with keto in general is that what we fail to do when we take out carbohydrates is we fail to replace it with adequate nutrients to fuel our body. And I think that a lot of women who are experiencing these problems, that's what they're doing is, is if you're eating 1200 calories a day and you're exercising six days a week and you're a mom who is like running around chasing kids and you have this busy, crazy lifestyle, there, there's no way that you're getting enough nutrients in with 12,000 calories or 1200 calories. You need to up mm-hmm. that. So I think for many of the the struggles that women have, just getting more high quality nutrients from um, more calorie rich foods is going to help a lot of these women out and, and, you know, solve a lot of those problems. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great insight. Um, What about CrossFitters? So people who do high glycolytic activity, uh, the traditional uh, kind of thinking is that, well, for long endurance uh, where the intensity is very low, um, high fat, low carb can actually be really great um, because they're at a low intensity. But that the higher the intensity someone is, uh, the the more glycolytic, the more carb they need. Um, yes. What What do you say to that? Yeah. So a couple different things to unpack with this too. Um, first one is I'll go through the. There's a lot of research out there that says that. Um, you can't perform that type of exercise without carbohydrates. So there's a lot of things that say that keto dieting is bad for that. Now, the important thing to point out is that these studies have been pretty poorly conducted. So a lot of the research that says that you can't do keto for strength and power and, and different you know, performance, mechanism, um, performance measures like this. These are studies where they basically like put somebody on a ketogenic diet for three days and then test their measures. Well, it's like Mm. we know that like you're not adapted to a ketogenic diet in three days. You're not going to see improvements in any of your measures. You're probably going to see decrements in your performance because we're we're still adjusting to being fat adapted. So that's the case with a lot of the research that's out there that goes against it. Now, there are some studies that have come out recently. There was a study that came out in 2016 where they took a bunch of CrossFitters. um, But keep in mind, these were general population. So average Joes like myself, not, not elite athletes or anything like that. Um, who were following the ketogenic diet for 12 weeks and doing CrossFit, and they saw improvements in not only their body composition, but all of their performance measures. So, um, you know, th- this just shows that we, we can still perform at a high level um, doing, you know, without carbohydrates and following a ketogenic diet. But what I always say to people is it really depends on what your primary goal is. So for, you know, Rich Froning and like the most elite athletes out there who – um, are one ex- incredibly healthy. They're focused on their bodies all all day. They're ner- they're probably extremely insulin sensitive. They're going to benefit from probably from using carbohydrates as an ergogenic aid before their workouts, and they're probably going to see a lot of improvements out there. But and their primary goal is performance. So like his goal when he's going into a session is performance. That's the number one thing. But for average Joes like myself, my primary goal isn't just performance. It's improving my performance, but also having good health, feeling good the rest of the day, being able to like promote longevity and a long, you know, life, um, improving my quality of life, all of those things. So for most of the people, I think, unless you're seeing extremely high level athletes, I think that, you know, the worry that you need to have carbohydrates to, for performance just isn't there because we know that you can see improvements without them. 
Uh, and that doesn't mean that you're maybe going to be performing at 100% optimal level without them, but it's, you're still going to be seeing improvements. Um, and especially when you consider the fact that when you're on keto, you're improving so many other facets of your health that that's also going to be factored into you performing better in the gym when you're there. So I think that's right. kind of another thing to, to take into consideration. But, um, but then I also will say as a caveat to that, that even somebody who's following a ketogenic diet, there can be a place for strategically incorporated carbohydrates. Um, so like for myself, I, I play a lot of basketball and I, over the last year I started experimenting with um, using like slower digesting carbohydrates and even faster digesting carbohydrates before I play to see what that does for my performance. And, and I've noticed that, you know, it, it does uh, improve my endurance me in some ways be a little bit more explosive and powerful. Um, but I'll also say again to that is that because I've been following keto, um, I'm more insulin sensitive. I have a restored metabolism. So I more effectively use those carbohydrates for mm -hmm. someone who is more insulin resistant, those carbs aren't going to really be all that beneficial in my opinion. But as you do keto for a while and you become more, um, more insulin sensitive and a better carbohydrate user, then you can incorporate these strategically to maybe go that extra, you know, mile in your training. Yeah. We would generally recommend people focus on the fat loss first and mm -hmm. that in of itself is the biggest goal. And then after, once they're lean, quote unquote enough, then they can focus on the performance side, uh, possibly like a cyclic low carb where mm -hmm. they're feeling up right before and right after a workout. Yep. Uh, personally, I noticed when I was playing around with strict keto, cause I am no normally pretty low carb, but, um, the strict keto, uh, yeah, I've, I definitely felt like I, I might have needed something, uh, after a workout. And mm -hmm. so at this point now I just basically do pretty low carb. And then after a workout is when I'll have the majority of my carbs. Yeah. Um, so what, when you're playing around with that stuff, uh, what kind of carbs are you taking in? Is this like a maltodextrin or like a rice dextrose or, or what? Yeah. So I've been playing with, uh, my favorite that I've used is the UCAN super starch. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Just like a little bit of a digestive resistant starch. Um, yeah. I, I take it beforehand because, um, one of the things that, you know, one of the, the reasons for, you know, consuming a lot of carbs post-workout is, is this thought that you're going to like replenish glycogen and stuff. But there, there is some research that has shown that, you know, well, long-term adapted keto athletes can replenish glycogen without the need for carbohydrates. So when I'm using them, I'm using them more for just improving my performance beforehand. So I In use that them. Moment. Yeah. 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 I use right. them as a pre-workout. Um, so what I usually do, like my kind of my favorite, uh, combination is, is I use, um, perfect keto. We have a, a pre-workout that has like citrulline malate in it. Um, mm. we have beta, beta alanine in it. Um, there's some beast branch chain amino acids and then some creatine. So, and there's some exogenous ketones. So mm -hmm. that combined with the, you can super starch for me, I've noticed is just a great way to like, and to the point where, you know, I, I never felt like my performance was dipping on keto. I felt always felt like I was doing pretty well, but I noticed a, dr a dramatic improvement when I, you know, was taking that. I just felt like I could play for longer. I felt like my intensity was a little bit higher. Like I could push it a little bit more. Um, but I think it's something to play around with because, you know, I've heard some people say that they don't really get much out of that. I've heard some people say that they prefer more fast, faster digesting carbohydrates. Um, so it's definitely, you know, I always say self-experimentation is key with that stuff. Right. Awesome. Um, what, since you mentioned it, what are your thoughts on exogenous ketones? Are they necessary? Uh, does it help with that ad adaptation to a, a keto lifestyle? Uh, what are they, <laughs> you know, and how do you get them? Yeah. So I'll start with, uh, you know, saying that, um, 
I, I do work for a company that sells exogenous ketones. So most people are going to think that I'm biased on this answer, but I actually started studying exogenous ketones when I was in grad school, uh, just shortly before they were any available on the market. So I was studying them back when, you know, we basically just had raw powders and we were mixing like Mio with them and they, they tasted like crap. They were, they were horrible. Um, but what exogenous, so I've, so the point of that is that like, I've, I've been studying ketones for a while before I, I worked for a company that sold them. So, um, exogenous ketones are supplemental ketones. So basically they're a product that you take it and it leads to an increase in your blood ketone levels for about two to three hours after you take it. Um, you do not have to take exogenous ketones on a ketogenic diet. Um, your body will produce the ketones that it needs naturally. Um, but what the unique thing about the body is, and this is kind of a, I think an important thing to realize is that when, so let's go back to the brain example. When our brain is metabolizing glucose, um, or carbohydrates for energy, the car, the glucose is only pushed. It's only, um, I'm sorry, it's, it's pulled into the brain based on the energy demands of the brain. So if, if your brain needs X amount of energy, it's going to pull in that much glucose to meet the energy demand. Now, what's interesting about ketones is that ketones are pushed into the brain based on their availability in the blood. So you couldn't eat more ice cream and provide like more energy to your brain through sugar, right? But you could take exogenous ketones and increase your ketone levels and provide more energy to your brain in this mechanism. So what that means is that there are some times when strategically in like, I don't think that the goal is to chase higher ketone levels for anybody, but there are times when higher ketone levels are beneficial. So, you know, an example for me is uh, when I wrote the keto answers book, for instance, every morning I would do deep work for about three to four hours. I would write on the book. Well, that's a great time for me to have more ketones and energy available to my brain. So I take them before that. Um, in the afternoon when it's like three o'clock and I don't want to have caffeine because it'll mess with my sleep, but I need some energy, exogenous ketones are a great thing to take during that time. Um, and then, you know, other times like before a workout can be a great time to provide more fuel and motivation and energy for your brain. That can be a great time to take them. And then you brought up another good example of using them. Um, the, uh, during the keto adaptation period is a fantastic use of them. And the reason why that is, is because, um, it takes time, you know, when we start keto, we'll start producing ketones within 16 to 20 hours for some people, we'll start producing ketones, but it takes time for our bodies and our cells to upregulate these. So we need, there's these transporters in our cells that are required for ketones to be taken in and used for energy. Now, if we've, you know, all of us are born in a state of ketosis. So babies are in a state of ketosis when they're born and um, we remain in ketosis pretty much until we introduce solid food because breast milk contains a lot of MCTs which are converted into ketones. So babies are in ketosis for a long time. But once solid foods are introduced to us, we don't really have ketones circulating very much for the rest of our lives unless we go on a low carbohydrate diet. So that means that these transporters, they have to be woken up a little bit and they have to be kind of activated so that they can let ketones in to be used as energy. And one of the things that we've seen in research is that the, with higher blood ketone concentrations, we get greater activation of these transporters. So the theory here, and this is something that hasn't really been tested, but the theory is that if you take exogenous ketones um, while you're adapting to the diet, you're going to help your body become an efficient ketone utilizer while also providing some, some more fuel um, for the body while you're getting adapted to producing your own ketones. So that's kind of another great time to use it. But um, I always say that they're not something that you have to take, and they're definitely not something that you need to be taking all the time. It's more of those um, strategic supplements that you can use as needed. Cool. I only got a, a few more questions and we'll do kind of a rapid fire style. Yeah. 
what are your thoughts on the documentary Game Changers? Because that is going around like wildfire right now. Yeah, so um, short answer to that is because we could have a whole podcast on this. Right. Short answer to that is that there's no credible science being used in that documentary. Um, I am not against plant-based diets at all. I, I don't think that they're the best diet for health. I think there's a lot of problems with the way people are following plant-based diets. Um, but I'm not like just, you know, I don't have any reason to be 100% against them. But the Game Changers documentary, um, it's biased. It has no credible science. Every single study in that um, documentary can be easily debunked. And the people, James Cameron, who is the person who put that out, he has plenty of financial incentive to making people believe that plant-based diets is the way to go. He has like over, it's like $140 million invested into like a pea protein company or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, if you guys want to see a great article, Perfect Keto wrote a review on Game Changers. We sat down and, and debunked everything in that movie. So if you have questions about it, I would check out, I'd go to perfectketo.com and type in Game Changers. And you can read that review, and I think it's going to answer all your questions for you. Cool. I'll include a link in that, too. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger? Yeah, so uh, same same thing along the lines. Again, plant-based diets don't have a huge problem with them. But if your plant-based diet is consisting of an Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger, there's problems with that. And there's a couple reasons why. One, highly processed, highly artificial, loaded with pro-inflammatory vegetable oils, um, you know, using a bunch of ingredients that our body is not good at, at metabolizing. And then the other component of it is that if you're, you know, most people who are following plant-based diets are following these diets because um, sometimes it's because they think it's the best for health, but other times it's because of like the environmental Environment. impact. Right. And from an environmental standpoint, it, doing like sustainable animal agriculture is way better for the environment than what has to happen for us to get what we need to produce an impossible burger or beyond burger it is actually way you know talking about like soy soybean farming and things like that um, monocropping all of that not good for the environment at all so if you're somebody who's following a plant-based diet because you want to improve your health beyond burger and impossible burger are not doing that for you and if you're doing it because you think it's better for the environment it's also not doing that for you so if you're going to do plant-based you're better off doing a whole food version of a plant-based diet yeah, Diana or Diane Rogers, I forget which one is it, but uh, she she writes a lot about this in terms of sustainability and, and how uh, just traditional farming, uh, real farming is really the, the way to go instead of a lot of this uh, plant-based farming that people think is saving the world. Absolutely. Um, what books would you recommend people read or what books do you recommend the most? Yeah, so obviously I have to be a little biased and say Keto Answer is <laughs> a great one to start with. Um, <laughs> A couple books that have really helped me along the way. Um, the Tripping Over the Truth by Travis Christofferson was one that I, I think is great. But he also came out with another book a month ago called Curable. And this one, it's not specific to keto, but it does. It shows you the um, the current state of our medical care in the United States and how disastrous it is. And it's not to be a depressing book to make you sad. It's kind of to show you that the importance of taking control of your own health and looking towards new and novel treatments. And I think this is something that we need to be considering more. So I think that that's a really great book to, to check out. Um, and then if you're somebody who is looking to uh, use the diet for certain therapeutic uses, um, for Alzheimer's, there's a great book written by Mary Newport um, that's called, uh, I'm actually drawing a blank on the name of it. Um, might have to look it up. She came out with a new book earlier this year about ketones and like for neurodegenerative diseases. So that would be a great book to look at. And then Miriam Kalamani. Is she the one whose husband she, she uses like a study as a? 
Yes. Yeah. Her husband, yeah. Uh, severe Alzheimer's and, yep. and she helped him before we even knew about keto. She was using like coconut oil and, and things yes. like that. Yeah, she she had him like draw a clock and the clock improved like ridiculous amount after just like a day or two. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty pretty powerful story and she and she goes into that in that book too. I think it's The Complete Guide to Ketones, I think is is what the name of that book is now. Okay. Um, so that's a good one and then um, Miriam Kalamine has a book called Keto for Cancer, which is another good it kind of breaks down the keto diet pretty simply uh, and and it talks about like using it to um, help you know, patients or help family members, how you would help them implement the diet. So I always recommend those books because if anybody out there is like me, you hear about the potentials here and you start thinking of all the family members and friends that you want to help. Um, and I think these books are really good resources to kind of show you how you can help those people. Cool. Um, and last two questions. What are you currently geeking out on? Ooh, good question. Um, two things that I'm geeking out on right now. One is the the sustainable agriculture animal agriculture and the meat based um, stuff um, it's devastating to see how many people are being like are falsely being misled to thinking that meat is bad for us and it's bad for the environment and um, that plant based is the way to go uh, and I think that if we don't put a lot of care into this right now we're going to end up in a very bad place um, and I that's something I don't want to see happen so I'm doing a lot of research right now around sustainable agriculture, um, the effects of meat on our health, um, you know, the benefits of carnivore dieting, especially for conditions like autoimmune and mental health disorders. Um, so those are, those are, that's one big area that I'm researching. And then another area that's kind of totally opposite outside of keto and everything is, um, I'm, I've been over the last year doing a lot of research on psychedelics for mental health. So, um, just doing a lot of diving into the research on, you know, using different psychedelic drug therapies for like PTSD, depression, anxiety, um, you know, addiction, things like that. So if anybody's looking for a really great book on that, um, there's the book by Michael Pollan, um, How to Change Your yep. Mind, which is a really yeah, great Yeah, I listened to that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's probably the best place for you to start. There's a couple other really good ones, like Neuropsychedelia is a good one that breaks down. Um, I think the reason why I'm so in, uh, attracted to the psychedelic research is because it's very similar to the keto research where... Um, keto research stopped for like, you know, 40 years because the pharmaceutical industry came in and came up with better options. And, and then we said fat was bad and we threw the research under the rug and there's all these misconceptions about it. And psychedelic research is, is the same. We, we had years of research showing that people were seeing incredible improvements in their mental health through, um, you know, actual uh, psychedelic therapy with like a trained psychologist. And then we demonized these compounds and the pharmaceutical industry came out with a bunch of um, addictive antidepressant drugs and things like that. And then we lost all this research. Um, and, but now we're starting to see psychedelics are coming back. John Hopkins Institute is building out a, a research institute to study this mm. again. Um, so we're seeing more of this stuff come out. So that, that's kind of something that I'm really excited about because uh, mental health, it, it's an epidemic um, in, this, in our country right now. And um, there's not good, any good options for it. I mean, our treatment options are incredibly poor. We put people on addictive drugs that make them worse off than if they never took them in the first place. Um, it's, it's very sad. So anything that we can do to help combat these problems, I think is going to be huge. Have you thought about or gone on uh, ayahuasca retreat? I have not. Um, I, I'm very curious about it. So I've been studying it. I've, I've experienced with other things um, and I've done, I've done, I've gotten to experience with a few other things, but I have not done ayahuasca yet. Um, I think part of the reason too, is that I don't maybe have a reason for right now. And I, I think mm -hmm. there's, it's good to have an intention if you're going to do something like that. 
Um, right. I've talked to some people who have had some pretty incredible experiences on it and I read a lot about it. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Interesting. That's yeah. a whole other, whole other podcast. Um, and then last question, what's on your bucket list? Ooh. Hmm. Well, I think the, the first thing that popped into my mind, it's been on my bucket list since I was a little kid, is that I want to attend every single Major League Baseball stadium for a game. Um, so I'm about, I'm about halfway there now. Uh, that's been a big bucket list item for me because I love, uh, one, anytime you go to a new baseball stadium, you get to experience a new city while you're at it. So, right. uh, you know, some of the cool cities that I've seen have been places that I probably wouldn't have gone to unless I was going to a baseball game. So uh, that's been a big thing since I was a little kid is to go to every baseball stadium. Cool. Yeah, I love having that list of, of something that gives you a reason to go somewhere, right? Yeah. So yeah. ours is like taking uh, the wonders of the world and there's several lists of different wonders of the world, yeah. but using that as a way to kind of figure out where we want to go. Um, yeah. It makes you more intentional when you plan your vacations, you know? You're, yeah, you're, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Cool, man. All right. So... Um, where can people find you? Yeah, so I have uh, an Instagram that is the ketologist. Um, I have every social media, but Instagram is probably the best because I, I respond to all my DMs on there. So if you have questions, you can catch me there. Um, and then also my YouTube channel, I just started building it out, just started kind of committing to doing more video for people um, by request. So I'm doing a lot more of those. So that's at the ketologist as well. And then I have a website where I put up blog posts, which is um, also theketologist.com. So that's kind of the, the go-to to find more on me. Awesome. And then obviously the book Keto Answers, yep. um, collaboration with you and Dr. Anthony Gustin. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you very much for your time. It took yep. up more than I was intending to. But um, when we go down these rabbit holes, um, yeah, I kind of can't stop that that ball from rolling. Yeah, um, I talk about everything. <laughs> yeah. So stay in line. But uh, the rest of you guys... Uh, check us out on crossacana.com and we'll have links to the show notes in the uh, in the podcast. Thanks. Hey folks, thanks again for listening to Crossacana Radio. If you like what you heard, head over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and leave us a review, which helps us get found on the interwebs. Also, head over to social media, find us on Facebook and Instagram at crossacana, K-A-N-N-A. -N -N -A. And if you have any questions for the podcast, email us at info at Thanks and have a great day.